and welcome to the Body and Food Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Preston, trauma therapist and nutritionist. I'm the creator of the Body and Food Freedom Program, a women's group focused on helping women make peace with food and their bodies. I know firsthand how dieting, food restriction, and body shame can steal our joy and have us playing small in our own lives. But I also know the freedom and liberation that comes with breaking free from diet culture, making peace with food, and learning to respect our bodies. Follow along as I speak to you and my guest about intuitive eating, body image healing, mental health, and two of my favorite things, curiosity and compassion. If you want to connect with me, find me on Instagram at Vanessa underscore Preston underscore or my website, greenlifepsychology.com. I'm so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Body and Food Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Preston, and I have absolutely missed you all. Um, I, as you know, went to Fiji, which was absolutely amazing. And I just, I think out of all the places I've been so far, Fiji and Vietnam are my, definitely my top two. I found the Fijian people to be so kind and engaging and you know, I met different Fijian people along the way who shared parts of their stories and a really common like um, thread among all of that was how hard COVID was um, for them. And many of them actually talked about during COVID, they left the big cities and went back to the villages where they had grown up and spent their childhood. And they just talked about what that transition was like for them. And many of them actually haven't left their villages. They have decided not to go back to kind of the hustle of the city life that some of them were living. Um, I also was thinking like, what was my favorite part of Fiji? And too much, too much to say. Um, I mean, I did find it slightly adorable when we were doing things and the like village, like the children in some of the villages would run out and in their language, they would be like, hello, white people. Hello, white people. <laughs> and I just, I loved it. Um, and, but I do think, so we went whitewater rafting and I was very nervous. Um, it was breathtakingly beautiful, like crystal clear blue water like just it just felt like it was it felt like paradise and I thought for sure though that I would be the one to get flipped from the boat and it was kind of funny because Ray actually was the one who got who got flipped from the boat and he he tried to convince our group that I actually pushed him <laughs> which I did not um but when we came back from Fiji we had planned kind of a road trip, camp trip to kind of north. And I was really excited about that part of our holiday too. But on day two of this road trip, uh, my throat started hurting. I, my energy levels just absolutely plummeted. I start, I, I started um, getting a fever. And so I realized that I had COVID likely from the plane coming back from Fiji. And I'm telling you all of this because this is part of why I have been absent from my podcast. Um, it actually was quite flattering that I got a lot of messages over this time saying like, hey, does leaving hustle culture mean you're quitting your podcast? <laughs> They're like, where are the new episodes? And like I said, it was really flattering because I don't know, it's just nice to know, you know, the podcast family's out there and you're listening and you're getting something from these episodes. Um, so yeah, the combination of my holiday COVID, it's funny with COVID because some people have said, you know, it's just, I just got the sniffles and I just got a little bit of a cold and then I was fine. Whereas for me and a lot of people, it absolutely wiped me out. I was in bed for th pretty much three solid weeks. I felt so weak. Um, it was just actually really awful. Um, and so I've slowly kind of re-engaged with life. Obviously, my top priority was getting my clients kind of rebooked and 
um, and seeing them. And so this is why there has not been a new episode. It's also why I'm so excited to be speaking with you again. Um, so today's episode is actually part one of a two-part um, interview that I did. And on my Instagram, I had actually put a poll out to, to all of you asking if you'd be interested in an episode about gentle nutrition and about mindful meal planning or meal prepping, not in a diet culture way. And literally 100% of you said, yes, <laughs> please do this ASAP. So that's what we've done. Part one, um, which actually we didn't plan for this to be a part one and part two, but Lisa, my guest, and I started talking and talking and there was just so much juicy stuff to, to, to talk about that it is now a two part. So what you can expect from today is we talk really about some of Lisa's own body and food story and lots about gentle nutrition. So if you don't know, intuitive eating is a 10 principle framework. You know that I advocate for using it in a way that works for you best. Um, and gentle nutrition is the 10th principle within that framework. And I find, and this is something we kind of unpack together in this episode, I find that the people I'm working with, when they get to that gentle nutrition component, um, they can feel quite confused and kind of feel like, kind of almost like they can fall back into a spiral of dieting. Um, and so we talk about that. And then part two, which is next week, we talk about meal prepping and meal planning and how to do that in a much more, as Lisa says, flexible and simplistic way that does not include any kind of guilt, shame, rigidity that diet culture teaches us. Um, and so that's what you can expect from part one and part two. And my guest is Lisa and Lisa actually did a mentorship program the same time I did, which is how we initially met. And we've been talking about kind of getting together to do this for months, really. Um, but a little bit about Lisa, she is, she has certificate, sorry, she has certifications in intuitive eating, mindful eating. Um, she is a health and wellness coach and also a personal trainer. And so what she does now is really works with women to improve their relationship with their bodies, to improve the relationship they have with food, really get unstuck and not feel so trapped by dieting and diet culture. Um, she has her signature program, which is a similar name to mine, which I really like, clearly. Um, but her signature program is Body Peace and Food Freedom. And I believe it's a six-month program where you get kind of a component of individual coaching with Lisa. And then you also have a group component as well. Um, she also has a six-week um, course, I think around like mindful eating skills. So if you hear Lisa and you kind of really click with her and you like her vibe, um, definitely go to the show notes and I've put all of her details there um, and, and reach out to her. So yeah, let's get started. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to chatting with you and exploring our conversation for the last couple of weeks. So I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you. I said, as as my listeners would have just heard in the intro, that we met a while ago in a mentorship program, and we've kind of been off and on about like when we can get our when we can get you on. Um, so it feels like it's finally happened. Yes, um, and especially with the time difference, it's been a challenge. <laughs> I know, I know. So for me, just for you guys to know how dedicated I am to you, it is eight o'clock on a Saturday morning, um, and for you, it's Friday at. 6 p.m. Friday at 6 p.m. So it is we're both just so loving what we do that we are happy to work on a Friday night and be up early on a Saturday yeah, morning. Absolutely. So one of the things I like to ask all my guests and you can share as much or as little as you'd like, but just kind of, I suppose, as an icebreaker, but also to give my listeners a bit of who you are. Um, tell me a little bit about your own body and food story. Oh, it's something that 
I think about often and something that I used to obsess about. So it started, my first early memories are really of in third grade. I remember being in elementary school and being in gym class. And Mr. Lazarus, my elementary gym teacher, pulled me aside and told me that I needed to go to special gym because I couldn't walk on the balance beam. So while it was probably done with care and concern and developmental, what it did to me was that it set me apart from everybody else that my body wasn't good enough. Now I was already, you know, picked last for every team. It made me shy away from team sports. I became so unconfident in my physical abilities. It was further compounded when I was a freshman in high school and we were being told um, during that later that week that we were going to be weighed and measured. And I always viewed myself as being in a bigger body than these pixie girls with the words that I used as a teenager. And I just remember like thinking about it and obsessing about it and, you know, purposely skipping breakfast that day, hoping that the number on the scale would be, you know, the best number that it could be and standing in line and sweating and looking at all these girls and feeling larger than what my body actually was. So definitely some body dysmorphia sitting in that space, um, being uncomfortable. I started Weight Watchers when I was 13, 14 years old. Um, my parents, um, who are amazing, amazing people, they happen to be tall and thin. So they were, my mom is 5'10", my father is six foot, my brother is six foot two. I am not short, but in that family at 5'5", five five, I was shorter than everybody else. And I was bigger, like I had a different body type. And I always felt that like my saying would be, if I could just grow a couple of more inches and be like them, I would be so much more comfortable in my body. Compound that by growing up in a time of the Miss America pageant, Weight Watchers and Snackwells, I never felt comfortable in my body. And I proceeded to have a very long dieting history Um, A few instances that really stand out in my mind was that when I was having my first baby, I was nine months pregnant and I'd gone to the OBGYN's office and I gained a lot of weight while I was pregnant and I had started in a heavier body. And I remember that they weighed me, told me what the number was, and then they immediately took my blood pressure my blood pressure was through the roof and I had felt perfectly fine before I had walked in there. But as soon as I heard that number, my nervous system went haywire and they ended up inducing me because my blood pressure was so out of control that they were afraid for my health. I truly believe to this day, had they taken my blood pressure first and then weighed me, it would have been an entirely different story or not having shared that number with me. Can I say something? Sure. Sorry. Thank you for sharing so far. And there's so many things going through my head about your story. And it's so similar to so many women that we work with of these themes of not belonging, not being good enough, being conditioned to attach our worth to our bodies. But when you just said that about being in the, the doctor's office and being weighed, this is part of, I think, the importance of medical professionals learning curious inquiry. So in that moment, to me, if someone would have just connected with you and said, is anything going on? How are you actually feeling? Right? Just giving you a little bit of opening to what your experience was in the moment. It could have been very different, right? Absolutely. And who knew I mean, I'm 50, I'm going to be 57 next month. I was, you know, 27 at the time, you know, who knew that you had the right to say, I don't have to get on a scale. Who knew that was a thing? 
I mean, how many doctor's appointments did I put off thinking, oh, well, I'm going to go on a diet before I go so that I'm not embarrassed by this number because we have these stories of such judgment. And there's so many different levels, you know, having worked with my clients and my own story and we have that view that people who are in smaller bodies don't worry about the number on the scale and that there's so many different categories of small and thin and, and thin fat and fat fat and all these different ways and adjectives that we use to describe. And I believe that the chaos is similar in everybody's head and it's their personal experience. And it's not for us to judge what size body they are in and what that rhetoric is going on inside that we just have no idea of the impact and that poor body image isn't quote unquote just for women who are in larger bigger bodies it's it, there's just so much that goes on into the thought process and how we handle it and process it and manage it and accept it yeah i think I, I quote this statistic often, but then I can never remember where it's from. I mean, it's, I, I feel like it's a reputable source that I've saved somewhere. <laughs> um, but I think the statistic is like 91% of women have body image struggles. And so absolutely, it's something it doesn't discriminate. This is this is people of all races, of all body sizes. And something I see, I mean, this we could I could go on a rabbit hole with this one, but something else is gender. Um, I see more and more kind of teen boys and men coming in and they are disclosing real body shame. Um, but for so long, it's been looked at as, the, well, that's a girl, that's a woman's issue. And so absolutely what you were saying, I, I think you said like the chaos internally, does that happens for people in all bodies? And um, it's absolutely, and it's not gender specific. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not. We, you know, I do work predominantly with women yeah. um, and the statistic that you shared, it's funny because it's this, it, I mean, it's not funny. It's, it's the same statistic that I use all the time yeah. when I'm talking about body image. There are millions, millions of women, people who are uncomfortable in their bodies. And it has to do with what we are taught, not because there's something wrong with our bodies, it is, we need to understand that these, you know, where did these thoughts, where did this information, just because we have heard it over and over and over again, it doesn't make it true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, so going back to, you know, what transpired was that, you know, I had my kids, they're four and a half years apart. So definitely, you know, pregnancy, weight gain, um, an ex-husband who I felt was very judgmental about my body, um, which always made me uncomfortable. Um, it was never direct, but it was always felt, you know, when we talk about other people's bodies, you're also talking about what's wrong with my body. And when my son was three years old, I kind of, you know, quote unquote, took the bull by the horns. I went back to Weight Watchers and, you know, kind of upped my lifetime membership and did all the things. Um, and I became militant, like the militant dieter. I would, for years, I wouldn't have bread. For years, I wouldn't drink wine. For years, I would have plain white fish because salmon had too many calories in it. I would, I'm a former caterer. I would cook meals and then I would eat something different. And I thought that was all normal. I had no, it, it all seemed normal. And <laughs> normal, I sorry, right. normal, but also I can imagine you were absolutely praised for your discipline, for your self-control, for your motivation. <laughs> so it's like not just normal, it's actually praised, right? Right. I was, I was it. Like I could do it. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's like, I, I think back and, you know, it, it brings me 
to, you know, like there's so many different things. And, you know, like after my divorce and I was in and I didn't eat for three months because of stress and all of that. So I really dropped to an ex- a very low weight. And, you know, my diet brain was like, oh my God, it doesn't get better than this. You know, like, oh, thank you, divorce. Like I'm in my ideal body. Meanwhile, I go visit my parents and the next morning they're getting phone calls and they're like, is she anorexic? Like what's wrong with her? And and I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like I'm totally in control. And one day I got on the scale and it scared me. Like it really scared me. And I started to purposely eat. But then you get back into like, oh no, now you're go now like all that hard work of like giving up this ideal body. And you're starting to show up now in a larger body because I was praised. Oh, you've got such thin bones and such great self-control, which keeps me, which keeps you so stuck. And then in the dating world, you know, it was easier to, you know, like thin privilege. It was easier to find dates. It was easier to find dates than it was to find a girlfriend to go out and have coffee. It's all screwed up. It is absolutely screwed up. And I think one of my, one of the women that I talk about a lot on my podcast is body image with Brie. I did a little bit of coaching with her and she talks a lot about body grief. And she talks about this, the part of the grief that can come up when you're recovering from body shame, chronic dieting, eating disorders is, I think she kind of puts it as not passing as thin anymore and this kind of transition from this thin privilege that people do benefit from um what i'm curious about and it kind of bridges into what we're talking about today is when you describe your history and your diet brain as you say you were saying you use the word militant rigidity very all or nothing right you were good at it and so how, and this could be a huge answer, but kind of how did you transition from that into what you're doing now, which is what we're talking about, intuitive eating, gentle nutrition. We're going to talk about how to meal plan without, without the diet brain kind of taking over. So how, how did you do that? What supported you? It's, it's a great question. Um, because if somebody had ever told me five years ago, that I was going to be a non-diet, anti-diet coach, I would have said never, <laughs> not possible. Yeah. Like, how, could, how could anybody be comfortable in a body? And how could you not, how could you eat that? I, I, it just, I was, it was awful. I, I think about my judgment. I think about, like, yeah. it's the judge, it just, it pains me to think about how judgmental I was of myself as well as for others. The righteousness. And how come you can't just do it? Yes. Why? Like, what is so effing hard? How come you can't just do this? Yeah. And what happened was that, um, so I had mentioned I had gotten divorced and I I was working from my home and had my own catering business. And during that time, when I started to get divorced, I lost my house, my health insurance, my catering, because I was legally working out of my house. And now I needed to move to a condo. And I was like hobbling things together and I needed more security. It just all fell apart. And another company had approached me and I merged my business into their business. And I knew I wasn't going to like it. And I still needed I needed to do what I needed to do. And it was just one of those things that life happens and you make choices, the best choice that you can make. And that was where we, I needed to go. So I worked for a couple of different companies for a period of a few years. And I was also a catering, I was a wedding catering manager as well as a catering manager at a college. And again, I was known as, you know, like how come like we can't offer like healthy food, you know, at these events and they're kid events. Like they want to eat, they want to eat yummy, sweet, salty. And I would be like, well, why can't we do like, I just, the judgment was insane. How it just, and it was so disconnecting for me. I was always in a battle with myself, with them. It never felt right. Mm-hmm. And during this time, my personal life changed and my partner and I decided that we were going to move in together. And he knew how unhappy I was at work. 
and how into fitness I was and health and how much I knew about nutrition and all these things. And we decided that I could quit my job. He gave me the gift of time. And I went back to school for a year and I became a personal trainer and received my health and wellness certification. And I thought I was going to be the best, best weight loss coach around. Because even when I fell off the wagon, I, I knew how to go back and buckle up and do all the things, you know, it certainly wasn't smooth sailing, you know, it's, I was the militant dieter, but even militant dieters fall off the wagon. You know, we have to keep that in perspective that we all go through that diet cycle. So clearly, you know, ups and downs, but I could rein it in pretty well for a long period of time. And what happened in that second year when I really started to work with clients, I started to have, you know, share your progress day. Tell me about, you know, have you gained weight? Have you lost weight? Oh, it hurts because I know you only in this space. It hurts and my heart. <laughs> it, so it pained me because these women would be making amazing progress in their actions and their behaviors. And they were just the most wonderful human beings. And then I have to come across like my judgment started to, you know, fall off. Like I just went into compassion. And then I started to notice the amount of stress and anxiety that I was experiencing with my own scale journey. When I was in the zone, I could weigh myself three or four times a day. When I was out of the zone, it would be weeks or the stress or the anxiety. And I kept thinking like, this is just awful for me. Like I started to look at my own actions and behaviors and I'm thinking I'm doing all of these things and my day is determined if I'm going to fit into my skinny jeans or like what that number is going to say. And I came across the book Health at Every Size by, um, at that time, it was Linda Bacon, who now goes by Lindo Bacon. And I picked up the book and I must have read it in a period of like 24 hours. Like I just was consumed by the book because everything that I thought to be true was no longer true. And that opened me up to the path of intuitive eating. And that was another rabbit hole that I went down and I have never come back up from. And I also connected with a community called the Be Body Positive. Um, and I'm very fortunate that I have a partner who absolutely encourages me to eat and to be comfortable in my body and that we are physically active. And my workout routine, my militant workout routine has shifted. Yeah. And I've, you know, it's, I'm in a different body. I still have thin privilege. It's bigger than what I had become accustomed to. And it is still okay. Yeah. And I, I know you said something that um, about your partner your before your divorce and obviously your current partner, but it, it does make me think, and I wanted to do a future episode on this, but I think that makes all the difference in the world for someone struggling with chronic dieting and eating disorders is if their partner is supportive and accepting that the this is going to change, my body might change, probably will. It's going to anyway, even if you keep dieting, because that's normal. But I I, I was talking about this with Ray um, a couple of days ago, my husband, I was like, if you weren't as supportive as you were, I could cry thinking about it. I don't think that I would re re recover. And so I guess I'm just doing this as like a side note. If you're listening to this and you are a partner of someone struggling with chronic dieting or an eating disorder, your support is paramount. Absolutely. And all those behaviors that I thought were, you know, that quote unquote normal in the name of health and healthism, all of a sudden I'm going, oh my God, like I, I, I am very close to an eating disorder. I was very severe patterns of disordered eating. Yeah. And I was very fortunate that I did not slip into that next step of an eating disorder. Yeah. But I look back and I was pretty damn close to what that could have looked like. Um, Do you have a dog barking? I have a dog barking. And <laughs> Let's all say hello like to Lisa's dog. <laughs> <laughs> life happens <laughs> what's your dog's name 
Evie, Evie Hi, has a Evie. lot. To oh, say. that was my. Oh, Lisa, that was that was our dog's name who my grandpa kind of adopted, and 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 she actually just we just had to put her down recently. So I was oh. like, oh gosh, Evie, that's. Um, but so in in terms of this journey that you've kind of taken us on, um, you found health at every size, you found this kind of weight neutral approach, you found intuitive eating, and now it's obviously a huge part of your business, of the group, the signature group that you run. So how do you explain gentle nutrition? And just a caveat for you, we haven't talked about this a whole lot on this podcast. So how would you define gentle nutrition? When we work with our clients, we, they know so much about nutrition. I don't need to teach them about nutrition because I'm guessing that most of the women I work with or who are dieters know all about macros. They know all about calories. They, they know it all. My goal is to help them unknow what they know. And one of the things that I always talk about is that I used to be able to go food shopping and I would go into the supermarket and I wouldn't see food. I would see labels. I could tell you every calorie count, every fat gram, every carb, I could do mental math, calorie math in my head so fast that it was better than any math skill that I ever acquired through all of my education, (laughs) that I am a master at calorie math. And people are always wondering like, well, what do you mean nutrition comes last? I'm not going to tell you that nutrition doesn't matter. What I want to tell you is that it is not our sole determinant of health. We all know this ridiculous statistic that health and health and exercise is 80% of your health. I'm calling BS because it's not true. Well, you and a lot of research is calling BS, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I am not the authority here. No, but I, am, I mean like I am the so messenger of everybody's research <laughs> because I am not a research person. I am I am so grateful that there are people out there debunking this stuff and putting it into language that I can use and share and support. Mm-hmm. And it's such a freeing experience. And when we're talking about, you know, well, what makes up health, we're talking about, you know, what are your genetics? What is your DNA? What is your biology? What is your access to food? What is your access to health? Where do you live? What is your financial stress? What is your everyday stress? Do you have support? Do you have, do you have means? Do you have access to healthcare? Do you have access to clean running water? And, you know, most of the, you know, the women that I work with, you know, their present day, they have means and access, but that doesn't mean that they haven't come from their story that has a direct impact on their relationship to food and body today. So when we're talking about health, we're not, you know, yes, we're talking about this moment in time. And we're also talking about all the moments before time. Yeah. And that my idea of health and your idea of health are two different things. And when I work with women or my clients, the goal is to help them understand what is, what's important in their health and how do we help them reach their goals? Because what's important to me is not going to be important to them. Yeah. And nutrition you know, we, we think of nutrition, we just think about, you know, all of these things that are good food and bad food. And then we start to dismantle all of the, you know, all of our thoughts of creating food as being equal with the practice of intuitive eating. And I tell my clients, you know, nutrition comes last because we really want to focus on how, what you're doing, what actions you're taking, how does your body feel? 
so that we're not clouding it with that diet brain that automatically clicks in. It's funny is that um, as a caterer and my, you know, love-hate relationship of Weight Watchers for my most, you know, for 40 years, I used to dream of, you know, opening up a restaurant that was like a full Weight Watchers menu and you could know how many points you were eating and make it easy for people to be on a diet and do all these things. I went out to dinner um, a few days ago with two of my closest, dearest girlfriends, and we went to this lovely restaurant. And looking at the menu, the menu had calories on it. Mm. And five, six years ago, I would be like, oh, this is perfect. I could go and I could see what I'm allowed to eat and I can do my calorie math. And it just downright annoyed me. Like it took away from my enjoyment of my eating experience. And it was such a noticeable thing for me. Like I looked at it and I was like, are you kidding me? Like I've worked so hard to forget these numbers and there it is. And I had to work really hard to focus on what I wanted to eat, what was going to satisfy me, not how many calories of, oh, if I eat this and we share that, I can still do this because it's so quick to fall back into that diet trap of calories and nutrition of calories. Because once we start talking about nutrition, that diet brain thinks calories, and it is a hard, hard thing to disconnect. Yeah. So when you said earlier, gentle nutrition is last in most instances, that is, we're talking about that intuitive eating framework and that kind of the developers did put gentle nutrition last. And part of the work that unfolds before that, that you've described is rejecting the diet mentality, um, learning to respect your body, coping with emotions, tuning in. And this is something I've been really curious about lately, but because it's very different for neurodiverse people, but tuning in or learning to tune in to satiety cues, hunger, fullness, satisfaction. So there's so much of this process that unfolds before we get to the point of thinking about gentle nutrition. Um, one of my favorite books, oh, it's Alyssa something. It's literally called Gentle Nutrition, but I'll put it in the show notes, but she has, I'm sure you you know what I'm referring to, but she has kind of such beautiful information about intuitive eating. And then she has heaps of different recipes and she kind of does give these really these flexible ways of utilizing gentle nutrition to more honor your body in a way that's not what you spoke about earlier of the rigidity. This is good. This is bad. This, you know, and I think I want to normalize too. I don't know how long it took for you, but this food police voice that can get stirred up quite quickly when we're to the point of kind of really looking at our nutrition um, it's very normal for that voice to come up for a very long time. We have been so deeply conditioned to have that. And so I always tell people that does not mean you're doing intuitive eating wrong. It means you're human and you have a human brain, but it's the skill of externalizing that voice and really slowing down to be curious and really kind of coming back to what you've learned about yourself so far. So even Lisa, I'm like, I've done this work for a while. I mean, the grand scheme of my career, I'm like, this stuff still comes into my head occasionally where it's, it's the most recent one was this voice that was like, you can only have half the banana. And I was like, holy shit, that voice is still there after all this stuff. I'm like, it's like, you can only have half the banana because that, not to, that's a direct result of my keto days, right? Or, and, but the difference is I can hear it. I can externalize it. I can get curious about it and almost laugh about it in a way and actually go, I am a grown ass woman. If I want to whole banana, I will eat it. Um, so yeah, and yeah, you're laughing. I am, I am laughing <laughs> with you because I hear that in my head. Like, I mean, I do a lot of smoothies because I love them oh. and I will mix all sorts of things. And 
it is, you know, like, you know, it's half a banana, but sometimes the banana is only four inches long and you're only allowed to have half. I mean, for years, <laughs> yeah. I would only buy certain size bananas because that, um, I, that way I would know how many points it was. And I was making my shake and I was like, oh, well, this half a banana, that's not going to really give me much flavor. And and, I'm, and I said to myself, well, who made up the, like, who's given the rules that you could only have half a banana today? Like, put the whole damn banana in. It's going to taste so much better. You love bananas. That's one of my favorite questions is who says. Right. So when you start catching these thoughts and go, who says, it, right. it, it pauses you for a second. And so something, I mean, you've kind of touched on this, but how do you teach your clients when they get to this point of working on their nutrition? How do you teach that to not have it turn in to another diet? You know, I think I, something I often say, sorry, two things I often say, one is food has no moral value, but it does have a nutritional value that we're allowed to consider, but in a different way than what diet culture teaches and something else I've noticed when women move into this space is they almost can judge themselves for, oh my God, I had a protein shake. Is that dieting? Oh my gosh, I, I got a salad. And, and, and it's kind of, I, I encourage women, don't use rigidity the other way either. Diet culture does not own exercise. It doesn't own protein shakes. It doesn't own vegetables. So how do you work with your clients in this space to support them not to have this spiral into dieting? Absolutely. Because it's something, you know, it's, it, it, it comes up no matter how long you have been doing this journey, it still comes up. We are just as human as our clients are. And, you know, your, what you shared is part of how I also share and support my clients. We do a lot of revisiting of the previous principles and continuing you know, the, the hub of intuitive eating is about satisfaction. And I really use that. I introduce it from day one is that how, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What is happening? Where, how are you being satisfied? How are you using this food? And, you know, yes, we cannot deny that food has nutritional value. And it has no moral value. Mm -hmm. Noticing those thoughts, noticing, you know, how are you using that food? What are you noticing about your actions? What are you noticing about your behaviors? Are you honoring your hunger? Are you honoring your fullness? You know, it all, it's because it's not just about the nutrition. And we have to keep it in, in perspective that it's not a standalone tenant, that all of these things, yes, there's 10 principles they are all interwoven. So if you are struggling with coping with your emotions, do you go back into rigidity or do you binge? How are you using your food? Yeah. Are you, you know, it's, I, I really keep, you know, how does the food make you feel? Are you, and I love, I mean, I love, love, love M&Ms. Like they're like my my, I love them. <laughs> uh, I just like, you know, if there's a bag, I, my kids used to laugh because I would, you know, they ate M&Ms and they would know that I would, you know, I would probably buy them M&Ms so that I could have a few M&Ms because I would never buy myself a bag of M&Ms. Mm -hmm. Never. Yeah. Or I love muffin tops. I would never buy myself a muffin, but if my kids wanted a muffin, that way I could, you know, break off a piece and it would still be okay because it was just a piece. Yeah but I could never eat a full muffin. Like that was never going to happen. Yeah. Understanding what is going on. Yeah. And really paying attention. It takes into account all of these things because it's not just about the food. When we're talking about nutrition, how does that food make you feel? Getting rid of that perfection, getting rid of the fact that you are that permission, going back to giving yourself permission so that when you do choose to have, a, you know, fun food, play food, I, I, whatever words you use, even though we try to say it doesn't have any moral value, we still lump cakes and cookies into a different type of category. Yeah. We, we just do. 
how do we have that permission where you're not feeling guilty because you're eating it? We're talking about, we're not talking about every moment in time. We're talking about periods of time. Yeah. And Life ebbs and flows. There's going to be days and weeks and months where you are eating foods that make you feel good and you have time and you have capacity and you are cooking or making great choices. And then somebody gets sick or you fall and all of a sudden things go down, you know, like life gets, life gets hard, life gets real. How do you give yourself some space and grace? Because sometimes food is the answer. And that is okay too. We're not saying when we get to nutrition that food is not the answer. Food is always on the table to be part of your self-care toolkit. How do we bring real life into nutrition? And it is about noticing that it is not just a standalone entity, that we have to be open to how the food makes you feel. Five M&Ms, no big deal. 10 M&Ms, no big deal. If you eat a pound of M&Ms, how do you feel? Did it support you? How did it make you feel? How do you want to feel? That's your choice. Yeah. And this is too, kind of what you're demonstrating, what you're talking about, I think, is the shame and the self-compassion components of this as you're kind of integrating these principles in a way that works best as you are kind of learning gentle nutrition and in a different way than what we've been taught by diet culture it's very much why the emotional kind of side of this is so important because if we do have this period of time where we engage in more emotional eating or where we kind of you know aren't maybe eating in a way that makes us feel good we lean into the compassion or we're risk where we risk leaning into the shame, which is how many times have you heard this, Lisa? I've been good this week. I was really bad this weekend. It's the shame that sets in and that, and so what I teach in my program is like that keeps us more stuck than if we kind of learn to be curious about what's going on for us, be curious about how this potential food habit is helping before we undo it. Um, And something else, I really like about gentle nutrition is the idea of adding and not subtracting for a little while. That was so helpful to me because it was like, oh, so I don't know if I have a smoothie or if I have a bowl of oats, right? It it really did get kind of fun, which this is such a privileged place to be, but to, to go like, I'm going to throw in some berries. I'm going to maybe throw on some hemp seeds or some nuts and really learning about making it more colorful and variety and, and noticing that I actually feel more satisfied. I actually feel full longer. And so it kind of, to me, the adding goes so against the the diet culture of like, take that away, take that away, take that away. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that point up because that is something that I talk about all the time, you know, well, I really love to have, you know, avocado toast for breakfast, but I'm starving, you know, two hours later. What can you add in that's going to make you feel good? Or if avocado toast is all that you want at eight o'clock, giving yourself permission that you can eat something else an hour or two later. When we learn checking in with our hunger, That's part of gentle nutrition, because when we ignore our hunger, then we're starving later on and all nutrition goes out the window because we're, you know, like our bodies are screaming, like just whatever's in front of us is what we want. Absolutely about adding in and it, it all goes together. You know, what is your hunger? What is your fullness? What do you need to be satisfied? If you're having, you know, if you love M&Ms and you want to have M&Ms for breakfast, go for it. Let's unpack that. How does it make you feel? How much energy do you have? How hungry are you later? What do you notice about what's happening in your body? And, you know, that whole curious thing. I mean, like the the five pillars of my methodology are intuitive eating, mindful eating, the perspective of health at every size, non-judgmental self-awareness, 
and self-compassion. It all comes down to, you know, curiosity is the foundation of all of it. Be the scientist on you because I am never, I will never tell you what to eat again. Yeah. I, I did that and I will not tell you what to eat again. It's part of on your body. Yes. And it's part of the, I think what's beautiful about the the body of food work that we do is you you're honoring your client or the woman you're working with her autonomy, which has been stolen by this culture in so many ways. And so it's such a gift. Um, and I love your pillars, like the those kind of five pillars, because I do really summarize what's important about this, this work. Um, something it's funny because I, I struggle with, I think I've talked about on the podcast, something called PMDD and it's, it's very, it's, how do I put it bluntly? It's like PMS on steroids. (laughs) So it's like, it's like two weeks, two weeks, you feel pretty normal and good. And two weeks, it's like struggle town. And, and, what happened with this intuitive eating process. And I think it can happen when there are mental health stuff going on or chronic illness is I learned my own body. I didn't, I was not learning from a nutritionist telling me what to do, a dietitian telling me what to do, but it was, it was more with some guidance, but you get what I'm saying. They're not giving me a meal plan and telling me to ignore myself. And what I learned is there's parts of my cycle and this is gentle nutrition where I know I need a protein heavy breakfast. I just know that that is, I feel better. I focus better. I feel fuller, but there's also a part of my cycle where I'm like, give me all the carbs. I want, I want the sweet potato. I want the toast. I want the sweets. I want the salty. And for such a long time, I tried to fight against that. And now it's actually just, I'm going to honor this. Um, and move on. It's so much, it's so much more peaceful. It is, it's an internal and external communication. It is connecting your mind, your body, and your food. Yeah. And those three pieces need to come together because that's how you get that gentle nutrition. Yeah. And you gave a great example. You know, our bodies, we're not robots. Our bodies and our needs change. You know, somebody will say, well, you know, I sat around all day and, you know, I just wasn't hungry. Okay. The next day, all of a sudden, you know, you're racing around, you're chasing your kids, you, whatever you did, and you're noticing you're hungrier. It is okay to be hungry. When you can honor your hunger and understand what satisfies you with the foods that make you feel good. And they are going to change whether, you know, your food needs are going to change depending on the weather, depending on who you're with, depending on what's available, depending on the season, knowing that it is not regimented, that you have the freedom to explore what is it that you want right now? And, you know, what am I feeling? What do I need? When you come, you know, when you are educated with information about nutrition, because we don't want to underscore the value of, of fruits and vegetables and proteins, and we need those things. Yeah. That is not your enemy because you eat something that has fat in it. You are not going, you know, your body is not automatically going to put on X pounds because a food you ate had fat in it. We need those things. So we don't want to ignore the value of them. We want to focus on how do you feel when you eat these things or don't eat them. Yeah. And then it's your choice. Yeah. And I think something, I think I referred to it earlier, but something that's come up really in my clinical practice is neurodiverse people and and the barrier sometimes to certain principles with intuitive eating. And I kind of, the way that I, I suppose, teach that is, well, A, intuitive eating is an invitation and you can very much figure out what it looks like to you. There's not like an intuitive eating gods who are going to like come down and tell you you've done it wrong. But the there's other no thing food, is- There's no, there's no intuitive eating police. There's no non-diet police that are going to, although it can feel like it on social media sometimes, <laughs> but, but there's, there's, 
ways to meet yourself within this framework, even if you're kind of going, but Vanessa and Lisa, I don't know my hunger. I don't know my fullness. I don't know how I'm feeling. I can't, I actually don't know how to tune in internally. Um, and one of the things, and I suppose it's connected to gentle nutrition is the idea of practical hunger. And so I've had women come through who for various reasons really struggle to tune in to what they want for, for a while or how hungry they are. So we kind of set a little bit of a structure or a little bit of a routine or one lady, I do have consent to share, um, <clears throat> to share this, but she, what we did because she, she has ADHD. And so she, she would kind of get to 5 PM and be like, I've been distracted. I haven't tuned in. I'm, I'm ravenous now. And so alarms often for people with ADHD, they like, they're like, please don't tell me to set another alarm. But what, <laughs> what she's working on is she has this beautiful heart and this love for animals. And so we're habit pairing where it's like every time she feeds one of her pets or she gives them medicine, right? She is so loving with them. And so we've paired it with when you do that, eat. And, and, oh, it's, no, and it's not that. about what you eat. It's about you are eating because you need to. And later, this is what this is what we're talking about. Later, we might look at, well, how do we tweak some things in that space nutritionally? But with diet culture, it's like count these things, do this rigidity thing. And we're not learning those types of skills that me and you are talking about. Right. Um, you know, I talk a lot with my clients about is it a thought? Is it a body cue or is it an act of self-care? So if you don't have, if you don't have those cues, or because as dieters, we ignore those cues. You know, one of the examples I always say, you know, is that with when you have to pee, you feel that fullness in your bladder and you will go anywhere you possibly can to relieve yourself properly so that you don't have an accident. All those years of ignoring your hunger. Oh, I can, you know, like, oh, I'm busy or I, you know, I'm going to save it. I'm going to have a big lunch or I want to go out for dinner. And we just tamp it down and we have taught ourselves to ignore our hunger. And there's so, as you shared, there's many reasons people don't know their hunger and learning to practice that self-care and noticing that hunger doesn't always look like your stomach grumbling. That's kind of one of the later things that actually happens. I work with my clients to notice, you know, what is your ability to pay attention? What is your tolerance? How patient are you? Do you start to get that fuzzy feeling and think it's kind of normal because that's just what you experience trying to connect? And, you know, so we often use that hunger scale, zero to 10. And when you don't know your hunger, what that feels like, it's really hard and complicated. I try to work with my clients to start to use the words to check in. How are you feeling? Are you feeling a pleasant feeling, an unpleasant feeling, or a neutral experience? I love that. Oh, I love that. So that you you don't get hung up in that number scale. Yeah. Because if you, you know, and that's something I recently have started to notice that there's an, a, a better, not better, just different because everybody is different. Yeah. And as dieters, I mean, I could ignore my hunger. I could go all day without eating. And now I'm so in tune to my hunger. Like yeah. We eat dinner very late. We eat dinner at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And we eat lunch at 1, 30, just, just how it falls and we're hungry and that's what works for us. At five o'clock, I now know I have to have a snack. All of a sudden, you know, it's not a surprise anymore. It is, it's a mini meal that I will go and I will prepare something and I won't just, you know, occasionally during, you know, during the day, I might pick at some things just to, yeah. because, but I will intentionally make a mini meal that will hold me for a couple of hours because we're going to have a full dinner. But if I wait another couple of hours, that time is kind of wasted because my brain is, is fried. There's yeah. nothing left. Yeah. Learning to understand your signals. Yeah. And we're all born intuitive eaters. We can relearn this. Yeah. We have the ability to relearn how to do this. And if yeah. you don't connect with those signals, I love, love, love that. And what you shared about your client on your patient, 
how she connects with, you know, I mean, my daughter's ADHD. I mean, I think if she has one more, I think how many alarms go off? You can't even remember what the alarm goes for. Like you need an alarm to remember what the alarm is. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. What a, And just learning to connect with something that has meaning in heart. Mm. Yeah. That's a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. It's Vanessa. I'm sort of interrupting this conversation that I'm having with Lisa to let you know that we vibed and talked so long that we decided to turn this into a two-part episode. So I'm going to call it quits for this episode now, which is part one. I hope you've enjoyed learning about gentle nutrition, and I hope you join us next week to really unpack some ways that you can integrate and implement meal prepping and meal planning in a way that's not going to find you swimming in diet culture. I hope you join us next week. Thank you for listening, and I hope today's episode was helpful. Please like and subscribe to this podcast and take a second to give me a five-star review on iTunes. That helps get this message out to women who need it. You can find me on Instagram at Vanessa underscore Preston underscore. You can click in the link in the bio for more details about my program and my freebies. You can also find me at greenlifepsychology.com and I'm on Facebook at Vanessa Preston GLP. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.